Esports is one of the fastest growing industries in the world. And this is the podcast where we talk all things branding, marketing, sponsorship, and events. I'm Rebecca Langawa, founder of Happy Warrior, and I'm an esports brand builder and strategist. Join me as I discuss the world of marketing and esports with some of the top experts in the industry. Welcome to the future marketing in esports. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the future of marketing and esports. I am so grateful to have my guest, Felix LaHaye, on the show today. Felix is an esports marketer, investor, keynote speaker. He has been recognized by Inc. and Forbes as 30 under 30 list, a phenomenal marketer and dear friend. Welcome to the show, Felix. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Thanks for that intro. I was so excited. I wasn't, I didn't really like look at all of the attendees at the esports business summit, which was recently in Las Vegas. I just showed up (laughs) and had a couple of things that I was speaking on. So running into you at the Tempest Awards was absolutely a delight. It was wonderful to see you there. You were up for two Tempest Awards with your organization. Can you tell us about about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, so we were up for the uh, um, inclusion campaign of the year. We've been working with Tempax for quite some time. I, I think we did the first ever um, Tempax campaign in gaming. And this was for, I think, the second or third. Uh, you can see how accurate my information is on the, num- on the number. We've done quite a few. But yeah. so this is a really interesting campaign to me. I mean, we've we've been working on it for a while. But the idea at first was very simple. I mean, nowadays, a lot of people rightfully so, focus on communicating and marketing to women in gaming. It was definitely not the case uh, a couple of years ago when we started um, with Tempax. Of course, there were some things I wouldn't claim were the first ever, but I think you know it was one of the first big brands to acknowledge, of course, we, we care for the qualitative side and the messaging, but just from a quantitative side, there are hundreds of millions of women in game. They should be marketed too. Of course, Tempax had a you know a really cool approach that we developed with them about information and owning different parts of the of the conversation around comfort, around you know generally understanding what periods mean, what uh, what it means to use the product, etc., and truly more to combat misinformation. So it is a, an ongoing and really exciting uh, project and client, and I really love the work that we do together. And then personally, you were one of the nominees for Marketer of, of the Year, which is congratulations for, for being nominated in that category. That's that's a huge testament to the work that you personally have, have done. So it was cool to see you on that big screen. Thank you. Well, I'm not going to talk about myself, but I appreciate the, <laughs> the text. Well, and you I can think- talk about the project <laughs> and what I think, but you know, it feels weird. But, and I did this. <laughs> no, okay. I said well, tell me a little bit about how, because you have a really interesting story. You've been a, a marketer and an innovator throughout your entire career. Can you can you walk me through how you first kind of got into you know innovation, marketing, digital marketing, and social, and how did that um, evolve into really being an esports marketer? Yeah, so just after I said I'm not going to talk about myself. I'm going to make you talk about yourself, Felix. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm always happy to tell that, that part of the story. So we started a company uh, when I first, so I, you know, I, I grew up in Montreal. And then after uh, grad school, I, I came to, a, to LA because I loved it. And I've been coming here for, for a while, uh, visiting when I was working in music. And basically... Semi-randomly, a few months in, so 10 years ago, we, with a, a couple of people I was working with back in the day, we created what became the first social influencer marketing company as we know it. I am 95% convinced that I paid for the first paid for post on Instagram for a whopping $20. There had been some promotions with trade, etc. But I remember going there and buying that post to promote something and very organically mainly through a first mover advantage, we built a company 
that was at the time the largest independent influencer marketing company. We're in uh, we're in five cities, and it was a really uh, in countries. It was a really cool organization. I'm very proud to say that a lot of the uh, of the standards of influencer marketing today are things that we invented. Right? I mean, not all of it, but you know how certain contracts are made, some rights, some types of posts, some language, etc. We really helped shape that. Um, and that was great, except that a few years ago, I decided I wanted to focus on uh, gaming and esports. So two reasons. Uh, one is because I love gaming and esports. I think it's truly awesome. It's a passion both to play and watch. Uh, and because I think it works. I think that the you know gaming as the largest form of entertainment in the world, the cultural phenomenon that it is, is the best way to reach that target audience, which is, of course, uh, you know, for us, mainly the 18 to 34s. So created this, this company, United Esports, uh, at first as a, uh, a marketing company, but grew over several uh, divisions now. We, of course, have uh, the, uh, a really strong and, of course, unbiased, but the best esports marketing company, especially driven by our creative, I think that that's really what sets us apart. Then we have the chain of esports bars, and then we're making investments in competitive esports, esports technology, and so on. So we're really more looking at it as a group now. And of course, as part of marketing, we also have pure media. We're making shows, we're making content, we're making everything. So as you said at the conference, like 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 other esports or gaming orgs, we do a bunch of a bunch of things. Right. Yeah. And, and I like that because you're taking up really a holistic view on the industry as a whole and using your subject matter expertise to really evoke influence in a myriad of, of ways. And, and I think that's a really smart approach when you work with clients, you know, like a Procter and Gamble, I know as a client of yours with their, you know, with the Tampax product and others, you know, what are the things that you take into consideration at United Esports when it comes to bringing those non-endemic brands into the industry through a, through strategy? Yeah, uh, I guess that what we try to do is we, we try to rock, right? We, we try to do the op- opposite of doing things that people are not going to like. So far, every campaign has been very well received. I fundamentally disagree when people say that uh, young people don't want to be advertised to. I think that people, of course, I'm not saying that's their favorite thing in the world, but, you know, being in the digital space for as long as I've been, people accept that being advertised to is part of the deal. You go on a platform, you're going to see advertisements. May they be organic content, you know, pre-rolls, whatever it is. It is all about making that experience. And I've actually dedicated my career to that so far on the advertising side, even when I was in influencer marketing, to making the uh, advertising message as fun or interesting as the non-advertising message. And frankly, when you have the right content, it, it is absolutely possible. Uh, people, it's been a very long time. Some people have said that, oh yeah, you want to do advertising that people don't realize it's advertising. I think, first of all, that's immoral and it's also false. Uh, I think what you have to do is advertising that adds a piece to the conversation, something that's fun, something that's a bit different and make sure that you're, you know, really doing the best with the attention that the people are giving you when they're listening to or watching or reading your, your ad message. I know it's a generalistic answer, but it, it's the overall mantra of what we do. I'm happy to talk about it in more details. Yeah, I think, you know, you, you said people are saying, you know, you should create advertising that is like hidden or people won't know it's advertising. But when it comes to the esports demographic, what we're seeing is hyper sophisticated individuals who have been digital always. So I think a brand might believe that they're not overtly advertising, but this audience knows when they're being advertised to. There's no way to really skirt it or hide it. Would you agree? A hundred percent. And that's why I think the idea of hiding it is super counterproductive because you're caught the second you start. So it's better to have a conversation, say, hey, this is my advertising message. I hope you like it. And actually, it's better if they do like it, right? But then trying to be to be sneaky about it. I mean, sneaky mm-hmm. digital marketing 
probably got, you know, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't say got killed because people start continue to, to try and do it, but we stopped doing that eight, nine, 10 years ago. Um, yeah. I think the thing that rubs this industry that, you know, the fans the wrong way is like a lot of the information gathering tactics. I think that's where they are. Like, I don't want to give you all of my personal information, but statistically it is, it has been proven out through research that, that gamers and the, and the, the fans of call of duty specifically over 70% of them intentionally buy from the brands that are advertising in the space because they see the value in brand dollars helping what they love to continue to thrive. Absolutely. And I think that the data gathering is, is and I know it's not what you're saying, but you know, to what I was saying earlier, it's a different part of the conversation. I think that the data gathering is seen somehow and some sometimes truthfully as quote unquote, sneaky advertising. You know, mm-hmm. what I'm referring to in my comments a couple of minutes ago is a pre-roll, a sponsored stream, et cetera. These are the kind of media advertising that I'm referencing. I mean, we are, mm-hmm. you know, the, the side of our business that's in marketing, that, you know, we have a great talent team, a great media buying team, et cetera. But I think we shine through the creative. And that's why, you know, you were mentioning some of, of the nominations. We won a couple uh, awards for the campaigns from, last year's too is because you know I, I don't know what i'm saying what i'm trying to say is that i'm talking about the media piece and that's where we play and that's yeah. what i'm commenting on. i understand why people don't want to give their data without having a choice mm-hmm. uh, we do a lot of campaigns in europe you know with gdpr it's a completely different uh set of how you can advertise which data you can get and what kind of permissions you can give so Yeah, I understand why people are upset with that is what I'm trying to say with those 15 sentences. No, I I completely agree. What are like, what are some of the tactics that smaller brands, in your opinion, could potentially utilize from a, from a, you know, a, a digital marketing strategy or a paid strategy? What are some of the tactics that they can use to have a voice in the space without having to do these long term or these large team deals what what's what's the white space that brands can start thinking about here yeah i mean great question i i think frankly gaming is so large that just the distribution of size of media is is perfect and what i mean by that is that it's almost a perfect type of curve whereby you have an enormous long tail and a very very small short tail. And what I mean by this is most people, especially new entrants, would say, okay, well, here is what a hundred thieves uh, and or the rocker. You know, we, we know the organization that at the top, that's where we should converge. And that's why frankly the majority of the media and advertising that is being bought at the short tail is actually very inefficiently priced. It, it doesn't mean it's bad advertising, but it's expensive advertising and it's more The idea is that it's a, I mean, there's different kind of mathematical distribution, but this one can be seen as an almost perfect exponential, I mean, or or reverse exponential, whereby you have a very uh, short, very uh, small short tail and enormous long tail. And what I mean by this is that a lot of new entrants, the first thing they see is, and it's perfectly normal, it's the the Rocker, 100 Thieves, League of Legends, etc. These really top organization, properties, et cetera, which as a result, as there's a lot of conversions to those, it's basic basic market economics, very inefficiently priced. I'm not saying that they are systematically bad sponsorships, but by the nature uh, of how they are, they are, you know, they're very expensive and they come with some pros and cons. The long tail in gaming advertising is infinite. And I mean that both from an organic event and paid media side. So organic, so sponsored streams, streamers, there's tens of thousands of streamers that have whatever, 50 average concurrent viewers. Well, if you're a small brand, you know, these guys are really happy to, to work with you. They have a small audience, et cetera, but they have a connected audience. Side note, I am not one that believes that micro-influencers are systematically the best way. Uh, 
and we can talk about that after, but it, it exists, right? You have people just from a pure metric, metric standpoint that have 50 CCVs, 500 CCVs, 5,000 and 50,000. And the distribution is very exactly as you would expect it. So whatever the size of your brand, there is a place that you can play in that matches. Events, you have tournaments like League Worlds, you know, plug to, to my, my team talent for making worlds and playing great. But then you have tournaments in, in a bar where, you know, eight people are playing Super Smash Brothers. I don't mean that it's one is better than the other, but you have everything in between. And that's what you get from a space that is so large and so deep in different cultures. Again, yeah. also, I've, I'm sure you've heard me say this 40 times, but I generally believe that there's no such thing as gaming culture or a gaming community. I believe that there's 40, 50, 60, 100 communities that are based on location, genres, uh, types, you know. So even within those, if you, you can find subsets. Yes. So what I'm trying to say is that the infinite division and the distribution of gaming culture makes it perfectly uh, possible to enter regardless of which size of a brand you are. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I like to think about when I'm talking to individuals, decision makers that don't have a deep understanding of esports, I like to use the Olympics and each Olympic event as kind of a way for them to have something comparable to wrap their head around. There's Olympic events like gymnastics, right, that have a huge following. And the way you would talk to that audience in, you know, in, in terms of a marketing strategy is very different than maybe a, another event that doesn't have the same amount of following the, the, you know, the, the audiences, the people who are really, really into each individual Olympic sport, you could kind of have an understanding that within the gaming industry, fans of different games or <clears throat> different teams are similar in terms of being excited about something that is very niche to them. But right. I think where a lot of brands are missing out is they're looking at esports as purely a sports marketing strategy and not a pure digital and social strategy, because I think there are ways for brands to show up from a digital strategy, geolocation where events are already happening, getting their brand to have, you know, presence maybe through social ads without having to do a partnership with a team or an influencer at all. Like there's room for that as well. Absolutely. Uh, yes, <laughs> I agree completely. No, I mean, I, I don't have much of that because I'm in a group. So yes. Yeah. I I also feel like brands can have a voice in this space if they bring on the right people on their team where they can kind of be this autonomous voice and be a part of the conversation. I agree. Actually, that just now I've, I found something with it. what you were, you were saying. I completely agree on the point on sports marketing. And I think it's a, I wouldn't say it's a mistake, but it's clearly an inefficiency. And we really saw that now esports marketing historian two, three years ago, where almost all the executives in esports organizations, maybe not almost all, but a big chunk, were former sports team executives, MLB executive, NHL executive, NBA executive, which again goes back to the, the inefficiency of pricing, because you saw people that were used to saying, I'm just going to make up some numbers, but $50 million sponsorships for whatever, the Lakers, and it's okay, fine. We'll sell the same exact sponsorship for our League of Legends team. I'm just making all this up, just to exemplify it. For a League of Legends team, well, okay, the League of Legends team is smaller, so it should be 120th of the price. But truly, it should have been 1/200th of the price at that stage, right? Yeah. Again, the numbers are made up, but there was an inefficiency at first, which is actually now being reduced uh, through the approach of sports marketing to esports. It's changed and it's doing much better now. But the way you can look at esports, if you really, for me, want to compare it to traditional sports and sports marketing, is you need to look at it as automotive. And what I mean by this is that in automotive, you have F1, 
which is the best and fastest and whatever you want it to be. You have NASCAR, et cetera, which is the, you know, another type of competition of no judgment of value in one over the other. And that's what people see as esports, right? It's the top of competition. But the bulk of automotive and even the bulk of quote unquote racing is whatever, Bob buying a BMW and driving at 25 miles an hour in traffic. That is racing as a market. So what you do is very simply, and it's the same in esports, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the fact that the top existing level of competition competition exists and creates content excitement creates those brands and that culture within gaming and esports. I generally believe that you know completely non non competitive esports at home is esports in the same way that owning a BMW and driving at 25 miles an hour in traffic is quote unquote racing. It's a industry that's based around looking at one thing that's at the top and creating a whole culture and set of activity uh, that are more you know mass market underneath. And I find that perfectly healthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting way to to perceive that. I don't know if everyone agrees with me, but that's, that's my personal opinion. No, I love that. And, you know, Brett Diamond, who's at version one and rocker talks about the player side of the industry as being more aligned with having maybe a child who is a top pianist or other type of musician, or maybe has a lot of talent in acting where the parents have to lean all in and really kind of adapt their own lifestyle around the skills that their kids have versus a traditional sports model as well. And I think we're having more conversations around the differences because you can't take a traditional sports model and just splash it into what the esports culture is as a whole. I think it's part sports marketing, part digital marketing, part social. Uh, I think the brands who are doing things right are having a lot of internal conversations together across departments and figuring out what the right balance is and putting really smart people in charge of their esports strategy who have multiple disciplines in order to inform decisions. Like Jack Links, for example, has done a really great job of empowering internal staff to kind of own their esports strategy and look at things holistically and and not put it under a traditional umbrella. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, when, when we started this company, uh, we started, as the name suggests, as an esports company. But, it, it you know, now, frankly, at least 50 percent, if not more of what we do is, is, is gaming. Right. Because esports and gaming. And that's why I take the, the automotive example. Of course, esports is a subset of as uh, a subset of gaming. Again, nothing wrong with that. I think gaming is the best thing in the world. But what what I'm trying to say here is, I mean, every even esports team that gets brand money, very little of that money actually goes to esports. Almost all the money from brands going into esports is going to gaming companies, and that's perfectly fine. I, I, you know, I'm, you know, we, we've talked a, a few times, and you know, I'm not a purist. I don't think things should be done this way or that way. I think gaming and esports is a broad culture that has all these cool positive aspects. And it, I find it fascinating and actually very positive that it's evolving to being something completely different than what it was 10 years ago. And, you know, I, I tell this story all the time, but when I was, when I played rugby in, in university, you know, I would lie to my teammates because I wanted to, I didn't want to, of course, I went to the bars many times, but I also sometimes didn't want to go because I wanted to go back home and play Halo with my friends. And that's, you know, that's a difference between Gen 1 gamers uh, like myself uh, and others is that gaming was still seen 15 some, uh, years ago as a fringe culture. And yeah. that's why I generally believe esports today, which has all these different things and opinions from the pure esports organizations to the entertainment companies to XYZ. Yes, it's not, you know, a, a purist dream, but in my opinion, it's a much better industry because it really allows it to grow and expand and be more and more uh, inclusive of all different types of, of, of people. I mean, for me, even my dad now, of course, uh, 
knows about esports. My, my my partner, she knows about it, etc. Through me, of course, but it's evolved into a point where it transcends into transcends into so much that there's something for for most people, and that I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I agree. So I wanted to touch a little bit on how we met, which was in the esports 101 clubhouse, yeah. and talk about the rise and fall of an app like Clubhouse. Cool. Um, do you want me to just talk about yeah. esports 101? Tell me about esports 101. Like, how did that come to fruition, first of all? So, uh, esports 101 is something that I, you know, so there was this one second where Clubhouse exploded in December of 2020 when we were all uh, at home and the holidays, many holidays plans either canceled or significantly reduced. And this thing, Clubhouse, appeared. And right away, uh, Chris Smith is the one that invited me to it. Everyone's best friend, Chris Smith. Yes. Uh, great guy, very smart. We talk all the time and we have very interesting complimentary opinions of this. I'm sure you've had him on your show a bunch of times. Uh, He's just amazing. If, if, if anyone is listening, listening to this and they are not following Chris Smith on LinkedIn, that guy is constantly feeding relevant industry content day in and day out through through LinkedIn is how I first met Chris Smith. But yeah, he's got his finger on the pulse of, of everything that's happening in, in the space. Yeah, uh, I agree. But he invited me to the platform and like, I don't know, randomly, I saw what was there. I think Matt Gunnan from Esports One was had the Esports Club invited me to join and I said, hey, can I do an eSports 101? Because a lot of our clients being brands, you know, explaining what eSports is, is something literally, not a bit less, but something I did three, four, five, six times a day, every day for, for a couple of years, you know? So I said, hey, maybe we could do that. And then so I did that show. And then I think from the second one, or, or even the first one, Mark joined me and uh, we, we, we ran that show together for a few months where Rebecca, Matt, Tatiana, Chris, a lot of great people in esports, great opinion leaders would come in and we would just take questions from the audience. And we got, we got some really, I really liked it because especially at some point we got up to, I don't know, not thousand, you know, maybe a thousand listeners for like one show. It was, it had a, a good little following, then it tapered off like the rest of, of Clubhouse. But you had questions like, what is the difference between gaming and esports? And you had very precise questions that were really, you know, sometimes the panel that we had didn't even have the answer because mm-hmm. you needed a specific expert in that little bit of esports, you know, to, to answer. And, you know, we had all these great, I mean, I, I don't want to start listing all the people because I'm going to forget someone and get an angry <laughs> email. But um, I liked it, man. It was, it was funny, though, because when we went to Esports Business Summit last week, Rebecca and I met in person for the first time, but that was the theme uh, for me of the event is, hey, let's meet uh, 30 people I've talked to a hundred times and never met in real life. Right. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think Esports 101 lasted, what, three, four, five months, maybe yeah. two, at, two at its peak where we had all these people. And I, I think it was interesting. I did a, 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 added a little bit to the community. My, my favorite thing to always answer, I was... Always went to, you know, maybe you can see this from this talk. I'm a very theoretical person. It's like, okay, the theory of this is that. So I like to answer the question of the theory of esports. And I really like answering young people that were asking about how to get jobs. And, you know, that, that was my, the, the topics that I liked the most because it took me a bit outside of, of yeah. advertising, which I love, but I do every day, you know, many hours a day. Right. Yeah. I feel like some of the, the the themes that allowed us to be in a clubhouse room for two plus hours were usually how do you break into the industry? How do you sell into this space? Like this, the young salespeople for a lot of the emerging either amateur or pro esports organizations really trying to figure out how do they go after the brands. And I think it's interesting because I think from an org perspective, especially the new and young orgs, the way that they're perceiving brand partnerships is blinding them to opportunity in almost the exact same way that brands are feeling crippled in getting into the industry as a whole. So 
from an org, a young org perspective, they are looking at the brands that are big, that have a ton of money and they're like beating their head against a wall, trying to get up, you know, a meeting with monster energy drink or game fuel or Red Bull, but missing the opportunity to scale back based on really who their audience is at the moment, where they are in the moment and trying to find some niche up and coming brands that really complement an up and coming organization. And then you have the other side of the coin on the brand side, CMOs or brand managers who are put in charge of in gaming or esports strategy, feeling like, well, we don't have a budget to work with a hundred thieves or face clans. So we don't know what to do. We probably should just do nothing. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and we just talked about it, but my opinion, I mean, I'm sure that if you're listening to the show, you're, you are probably involved in gaming or esports marketing, or at least considering it. But I, I tell a lot of people that they're not in, in gaming and it, you know, it, it works, but say, there's a hundred percent chance you'll be in gaming in five years, literally a hundred percent. So are you, are you in today or are you in, in a 4.5 years? Right. Um, right. Yeah, I, I like that. That leads into I like to tell brands it's not you're not in a fear of missing out standpoint. You're in a cost of missing out phase right, right. now. Like what's it, the, it. Yeah. What's the cost of missing out? The cost of missing out is everyone is going to get there before you or a lot of your competitors are going to get there before you and you're going to be boxed out and you're going to have to pay in without the relationships. Like the earlier you can get into this space, the deeper the relationships are. And people will value long-term relationships over just cash play. So for you to penetrate that in four or five years, you're going to need to throw a lot of money to make noise, to push some of someone out who is a competitor in order to have some skin in the game. And that's a big cost. That's a, that's a large cost. And just Absolutely. the amount of understanding how you communicate and how you do modify a tone of voice for a specific audience, there's a learning curve there. And it's okay to get in and not fully understand that. There's experts that can help you through it. But if you wait too long, it's going to be very, very costly. Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, and, and interestingly enough, of course, some brands have already, you know, uh, already for the past few years, really been spending a lot of money to simply be unremovable. Especially brands, and no insult meant to our, our friends in those industries, but mm -hmm. you know, quote unquote, replaceable brands. And, and I mean by this, like insurance companies. At the end of the day, uh, some insurance is better than the other. But it's you know, there's a reason why insurance companies pay so much on everything to market is because once you once you are insured, you feel like you're insured. And some yes. are better, some are less good, etc. But, you know, State Farm was one of the first to throw tens of millions at esports because they just wanted to own real estate. And mm -hmm. now they have that real estate. Do I believe that they're doing something uh, particularly novel or super interesting? No, not at all. But I think they're, probably, they're doing something extremely intelligent, which is literally just putting a bunch of stakes in the ground. This is mine. You can't come in. And yeah. once you're there, it's really hard, as you said. I mean... You know, once you're somewhere, it's like building a castle. It's, it's much harder to remove someone that's behind a wall with whatever uh, towers and turrets and whatever they have on their walls uh, than when there's nothing. So that's what they did. I mean, last time I, I heard, and that was a couple, uh, a little while back, but you know, Mountain Dew was spending two years ago 60% of their marketing budget in gaming. I wouldn't be surprised if it's like 90% now, you know? Um, yeah. And drinks are less yeah, removable than insurance, but you know, at the end of the day, you can only drink um, unless you're making cocktails. I guess you can only drink one thing at a time. So right. you'll see. All, I mean, all this to say, the same people that advertise hardcore on, t on the same categories, not people that mm -hmm. advertise hardcore everywhere, are advertising in gaming. Yeah. I mean, we all know this. Sorry. I'm just. No, no, it, no not, not, not everybody makes that correlation. So it's really important to understand, you know, like I grew up in a household. Everybody grew up in a household where there were decisions made by our parents. I grew up in a Pepsi household, right? My mom loves Pepsi. That's all my mom drank. 
So I grew up in a Pepsi household. My dad was a, um, a Miller beer slash Marlboro red guy when I was a kid, right? Like we make these decisions and they are, they bleed into the fabric of your household. And correct. when you're trying to reach the audience within this demographic of gamers and esports enthusiasts, a lot of them on the younger side are making brand decisions that are going to stick with them for a long time. My son is 15. He asks for Sprite. He doesn't ask me for 7-Up. He asks for Sprite. Why? I have no freaking idea. But in his mind, that beverage of choice, they taste pretty much the same as Sprite. So he asks me for to buy him a 12-pack of Sprite when I'm ordering on Instacart. And, you know, that even brings it to like the Instacart and all of these digital app solutions that save us all time and money that are really starting to lean in the esports space, like a DoorDash strategy, where they are understanding that this next generation values time and will pay for services that give them the ability to divert their time to things that matter more to them than walking into a grocery store and picking out toilet paper and Sprite, right? So I think that's where really smart, stealthy brands are recognizing. Sometimes it's the logo slap of State Farm everywhere for the brand awareness. My son at 15 years old isn't thinking about insurance yet, but when he's ready to make that type of a decision in a life stage, he knows that State Farm is there because it's been ingrained in him for years he just asked me to buy him a razor. He wanted a man. He was specific, a manscaped razor. And he didn't just say, mom, I need you to get me a razor. I can go to a target store and buy a Remington razor for $19.99, or I can buy him the manscaped razor that comes with shaving cream for $60, $59.99 with a $10 rebate at Target. So that's what I did that because he asked me for that specific brand. And the only reason why my 15 year old son knows anything about Manscaped is because they have invested heavily in the gaming and esports industry. That's why. That's why he knows. Right. So you know it works. I know it works because I see it happening. <laughs> right. Good. Um, I'm no longer the only one that thinks it works. I'm very happy. <laughs> it works. It really does. I mean, it, but it's it, it interesting is. what you're saying. And I, I don't know how long we want to go in this segment, but I hadn't thought about this in a long time. There was something we called, uh, uh, so I called that in our contracts. I see myself training the young ACs back then. And it's funny, it hasn't come up as much recently, but we used to call it, I, I, I randomly called it uh, category specificity. And what I would say is, and we talked about that when we're determining the length of exclusivity. And I said, the more specific the category, the, the lesser the, the length should be, which seems counterproductive. But what I mean by this is the specificity is how much do you need to have of one thing? Car is the example. Insurance actually is the best. Insurance, you have one insurance policy. You're not going to, unless you're a bit strange, you're not going to triple insure yourself. You have for each type of policy, your house, your car is insured one time. So for that, we would say there's a very strong de facto exclusivity to the campaign because this space can only be uh, taken once. Drinks, a bit less because you can only consume one at a time, but you could have Coca-Cola today, 7-Up, not a Coca-Cola product tomorrow, and so on. You tend to have more and you have, so that was kind of the middle. And then at the very end was QSR. I mean, this is from memory seven, eight years ago. But mm -hmm. you had QSR where unless, this is the opposite, unless you're a bit crazy, you don't only eat at one restaurant or right, one right. place, right? So then it becomes interesting from an advertising standpoint because like, hey, am I, and this is when we're talk, discussing talent deals, am I going to block out all the space for food, which makes no sense that if you're McDonald's, yes, whatever, Red Lobster, is your indirect competitor, but not really, right? You're better off getting a better deal, better ad positioning, not blocking everything else out, understanding that the same person is going to, whatever, Monday going to eat at McDonald's and Thursday at Red Lobster, and right. then the rest of the time they're eating, uh, uh, whatever, healthier options. But this is how we used to analyze the types of deals. And I just you know remember this talking with you here. You see it a lot de facto, 
from the types of brands are really going hardcore uh, on occupying all this space. Yeah. Right now, it's almost exclusively, with a couple of exceptions, brands that you can only have one of. Yeah, that's a brilliant way to look at it, actually. Like, I, I'm so grateful that you said that because that helps me understand things at an either, even deeper level when I'm talking to brands. Like, I always, people are always confused about why a brand like Balenciaga or Louis Vuitton would get into the space because if you're talking about that demographic, could they really afford that type of brand? And like, yes, they can afford maybe a signature piece or like a one thing, but it's really about the long-term strategy. And so that's always been something that's been easy for me to understand, but I love it. The way that you're thinking about true competition, like is somebody really boxing you out of a space when the behavior, like it really just comes down to consumer behavior at the end of the day is what I'm trying to say. And I, I love the analogy that you brought in terms of food. Cause yeah, sometimes I'm going to make a meal from home. Some days I want a meal from home, but I'm just so slammed. So I'll order like Outback Steakhouse to get delivered. Like that's some, a place that I, I love that. See, this, this podcast is full of great brand plugins. So. Yes. So many. Yeah. Call me, hit me up Outback. So like Outback Steakhouse, we order from there quite a bit. But then, yeah, sometimes it's just like sending my house manager out to like a Taco Bell or a, or a McDonald's and just bringing fast food because it is what my, you know, over exerted body wants is just like, sometimes you just want hamburger and, and I have, you know, a 21 year old and a 15 year old. And that means there's also a bunch of kids between 15 and 21 in my house all the time. And it might be just like an entire bag of burgers or like a big Taco Bell box. Right. It's just a balance. It all comes down to balance. So I'm not a purist. So I absolutely love the, I love fast food and I love healthy food and everything in between. I think it makes a full life to not, you know, say, I only do that. If you only want to eat healthy, so be it. But yeah, I think you, it's it's fun a little bit too. It's interesting. I mean, I don't know how long you want to go about this brand thing, but yeah, the the types of brands mentioning Balenciaga and Louis Vuitton, very, I I, I got brought in a couple of conferences a couple of years ago, actually, when it happened, just to talk about Louis Vuitton and Mm -hmm. I guess it's all news, but it's an interesting thing to think about. So my other company, the one day, the, the influencer marketing one, almost all our clients at first were luxury fashion. And one thing that is most often forgotten about luxury fashion, not all brands, but almost all, is that they make very little money with true luxury items. Fashion, high fashion, Chanel makes all their money but I can't remember the cost, but with the $30 uh, lipstick, they mm-hmm. make all their profit with the mm-hmm. $30 lipstick. Yeah. The and, and, perfume. Perfume. And, and perfume exactly. is big too. Yeah. Cause there's a high profit margin on that stuff. And, and it stays forever, right? They, the luxury, I mean, a couple of these brands, Louis Vuitton, I'm sure makes profit with handbags and so on. But most of them, if you take a brand like Chanel, their, their, their true luxury fashion is, at best, break even and sometimes a loss leader because it takes so much design, energy, shows, et cetera, to make that beautiful dress that you got to change every, you know, every collection. Plus, yeah. you make one good perfume, you develop it, you can, it's, it's very cheap to make and you can sell it every, you know, you can sell it to a consumer every year. And a big chunk of the population in the Western world can afford to buy that. The, the medium luxury items from the high luxury brands. Yes. So, and it, it becomes, but, but the, but the purpose of, of that high fashion, high lux is aspiration, right? Yes. It, it and, becomes, and high growth markets too. Yeah. And I remember, you know, I worked in the, in the NBA before getting into this industry. And um, one theme that I would always see with our rookie players is the rookie athletes would show up on media day or, you know, on a game day. And they always seemed to have one thing that you knew they never had access to, or very few of them had an, had access to do this before they were signed in the league, but it was either like their toiletry bag would be Gucci or Louis Vuitton um, or their, um, 
or a belt or a pair of shoes. It wasn't like head to toe insane. It was like the thing that they were excited. They got, you know, finally had a contract. They were able to get something that they felt like really gave them a little bit of clout. And I think in the esports industry, we definitely have clout when it comes to the competitors and the streamers and streetwear. And as a fan, you might not be able to have a a suitcase per se or, or travel luggage with one of those brands, but you might get a belt or you might get a little travel bag to feel like you're a part of that story and a part of the narrative. And it, and, and I think that's, I think it's great. I think it's, I think that it allows people to feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And it is aspirational. And what we know about the gamer demographic is this is an audience that's more likely to get a degree in computing and, and make six figure salaries and come into wealth. And Coupled with the generational wealth that Gen Z is going to get from the boomer generation handing down that wealth, it's a smart play for luxury brands to have brand awareness in the space and sit and wait, right? It might be a little bit here and there, but the the, the waterfall of, of the brand, you know, love, I guess, of for lack of a smarter term, um, is going to pay off in the long run because they already have such an affinity for that brand. Absolutely. I agree completely. And it's it's interesting too, when you look, you know, the, the first ones, the, the Louis Vuitton one too, focuses a lot on, on League of Legends simply because they're almost all their profit now comes from Asia. And yeah. it's, you know, very, and it's a very logical step, you know, very Absolutely. popular there. And, mm-hmm. And, and very different shifting demographics, different, you know, coming to wealth sometimes for the first generation ever uh, yeah. in the Chinese market. So mm-hmm. I think we're both, up, you know, I've always, and I say it every time I'm asked, but I, I generally believe gaming is the great equalizer yeah. on many fronts. Uh, you know, everyone, you know, and almost everyone dif- different, depending on, uh, you know, you don't have to be six eights to compete. And even if you're, you know, if you have a physical disability, there's a lot of strategy games that you can just play with your your mind, you know, and mm-hmm. compete at a really high level for really high prices. So, you know, I that was one of the, the uh, like many, of course, that's one of the first thing I, that drew me to the space. It's a, it's a really, you know, I mean, it's it's really interesting. I mean, it's people. I, mean, I don't want to start talking about this and how the metaverse will do and the avatars and so on, but avatar free. You know, I was for, before being a video game player. I was a board game player, and that's really some where I had some of the most interesting competitions in my life. That you know, I was never that good, but I, I, I entered a few tournaments to pretend I was cool, and that's what gave me that idea of playing with a lot of great people that were completely different one from another, finding a, a space where they they match, but also uh, finding a, a space when they can kick each other's ass. Right. Right. So right. that's pretty cool. I like that. And I was usually the one at the receiving end, you know, getting my, my butt kicked. So I, I, I could, I, you know, I, I don't know. I've made my point very unclearly, <laughs> but I, 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 I think that. it speaks to the love for the space. That's a great context of like what drove you into the space. For me, it was more about like having an understanding of how Gen Z was interacting with each other in the world and realizing that in order for brands and marketers to reach this next generation of consumers, you don't even have to build anything. You can just reach them where they already are. And we just know it's extremely powerful to reach young people in the gaming and esports, you know, infrastructure. It's, it just makes complete obvious sense, you know, to me. And what what was difficult for me was over the past four years, seeing something really clearly and trying to convince people who didn't believe you, right? Like people were like looking at me like I, they have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to an esports and gaming strategy. And then 
almost like, am I ridiculous for like believing in this so completely passionately and innately that I'm trying to convince decision makers to see things through my, through my eyes, through my lens. And, um, not everybody, not everybody is ready to, to lean in or, or take a jump and, you know, continuing to be, um, hold my ground and, and still like share the stories and talk about it and believe in it. Um, there's been times where I've thought, and I, maybe I should just do something easier, but now I feel like the world is kind of catching on, like catching up to yeah. what you and I have seen for a long time. <laughs> I agree. I'll tell you. I mean, I feel like yeah, I'll tell you the, the most tongue in cheek answer I give when I'm asked this question, that what do we have to do for people to know about esports and gaming? So just, I say absolutely nothing. The people who don't believe in it will die out soon anyways. Yeah, it's yeah. literally just a natural generational shift. It's yeah. the generations uh, above ours don't necessarily know it. They can be convinced, etc. But, you know, the, do you think the, the people are 16-year-olds today when they're uh, 35 and they're great decision makers? They're like, I don't believe in gaming. They're like, oh, sure, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very, very true. So, if, so for our listeners, we need to kind of like put a bow on it want to learn more about what your organization is doing, if there's, you know, marketers that are listening to this and they want to be able to connect with United Esports to really leverage your subject matter expertise as an org to help get them there, get them there faster, or, or even to pivot strategy, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. Um, I guess you can send me an email, felix at unitedesports.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Felix LaHaye. I tend to answer. And uh, that's it. Or you, of course, you could go to the classic channels and go on the website, unitedesports.com. There's a bunch of fields, contact us. And you click one of those and someone on our team will get it. But if you want to reach me directly, Felix at United Esports is uh, something I check about once every five minutes. So awesome. you'll find me there for sure. Thank you well, so much for having you, Rebecca. I really appreciate the chat. I always love I always love chatting with you, Felix, and it's really wonderful to have somebody who speaks the same language and and that I can learn from. You've been really a true mentor to me um, over the past year, and just getting to know you has been phenomenal. And finally, in person, we got to meet in Vegas for Esports Business Summit. So I look forward to many more in person conversations and and calls as well. So thank you. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Again, I really appreciate our chat and uh, it's been an honor chatting with you on this, on this show. So talk to you soon, I hope. Thank yes, you so for much. sure. Thanks, Felix. Cheers.